I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 119 of Cybersecurity Interviews. This is yet another episode in my Rising Star series and we're speaking to Jenna Waters. Jenna is a cybersecurity consultant at True Digital Security, where she specializes in information security program development, industry compliance assessments, threat intelligence, and cloud security controls. She's an experienced professional who consults with companies across multiple industries in achieving security-related best practices and or regulatory compliance objectives related to risk management and compliance frameworks and a variety of privacy laws throughout the United States. Jenna began her career in the United States Navy working under the United States Fleet Cyber Command at the Naval Intelligence Operations Center and with the NSA. Afterward, she graduated from the University of Tulsa with a degree in computer information systems. Jenna is passionate about sharing her knowledge of cybersecurity with business owners, public policy leaders, and healthcare, financial, and tech industry members. When she is not busy helping her clients protect their customers' data, Jenna is a voracious reader, aspiring hobbyist, and dog bomb of two. In this episode, we discuss starting cybersecurity with the U.S. Navy, tying spoken languages into coding languages, leading and managing people, building an information security program, getting leadership buy-in, using frameworks for resiliency, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Jenna, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. I'm glad we got the uh, the audio issues worked out. Um, where are you? Uh, where are you located, by the way? Uh, so I'm actually located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So you know, smack in the middle of the country. <laughs> it's like two, three hours flight from anywhere then. Um. Yeah. Except for like the farthest state. So like I think California is like a three-hour flight, a four-hour flight depending on where gotcha. you're going. Yeah. Are you a originally an Oklahoma native? I am. I was born and raised in Tulsa. Um, I, I did do my excursions out in the, re- in the rest of the world. I lived in California for a while in Hawaii, which was fun for a while and moved back here for school. Nice. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in, in what we uh, we're calling cybersecurity these days. <laughs> so, I initially got involved um, sort of with my work with the United States Navy. So I'm a United States Navy veteran. Um, I joined right out of high school uh, just because, you know, didn't know, what to, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, like so many kids and I don't know, college just didn't appeal to me at the time. Uh, and neither did college debt, to be perfectly honest. Um, so I, I kind of, yeah, so I joined the Navy. I became an intelligence analyst and threat analyst. Uh, worked there for four years, uh, six years, six years total. So two years training, four years operational. And then uh, from there, I went to, you know, moved back to Tulsa, went to the University of Tulsa, where I majored in uh, computer information systems with a minor and focus in cybersecurity. And now I work at True Digital Security, uh, a consulting firm where I consult in cybersecurity, risk assessments, 
uh, PCI assessments, the whole gambit of things. Understood. And with um, with your time in the Navy, you know, I know I spoke to quite a few people that that really were in Air Force, Air Force, and Army Navy intelligence uh, in the nineties. Um, in your period of it, how what what did you see that maybe prepared you for some of the stuff that you're doing now? I mean, had had some of the threats evolved? Were there different types of uh, maybe technology, different types of things that you found yourself using more readily that you now are incorporating into your your kind of day to day? So, I mean. The threats evolved, but I think a lot of times the strategies and tactics that we applied are very similar. It's just the threats that change, the threat landscape changes, as well as the tools that we use. I mean, obviously, those are going to be quite a bit different than they were in like their 90s or even early 2000s. Um, so, you know, I, got, I gained a lot of experience working on highly technical systems, computer systems that I definitely still use to this day. I also um, was sort of how do I, I was a, also a foreign language, I also worked in foreign languages, so um, I'm fluent in Korean, and I think that also is a weird tie-in, but it really helps you learn code and really helps you learn um, computer languages, uh, just because it's a very similar skill set. It actually works the exact same parts of the brain, so that really helped as well. So I became pretty adept at scripting and things like that and working with computer syntax, so that definitely helped. Which did you start with first, uh, first foreign language or computer language? Foreign language. <laughs> Why Korean? I, I must add. I mean, I, I took Russian in, in probably one of the first uh, U.S. state classes that we started doing it in the in, in the nineties. For whatever reason, I found it was interesting. But that was that was about it. That was my only drive. Um, I was told to. <laughs> the military, that works too. Yeah. So so the military bases that on test scores. The higher you score, the more difficult language you get with like Chinese, Korean, um, Arabic and Farsi being some of the harder languages. Um, and then it kind of goes on down until you get to the Romance languages like French and Spanish. So the higher score you got, not to, I guess I'm kind of accidentally humble bragging, but the higher score you got, the harder <laughs> language you were assigned. <laughs> so that's how I got it. <laughs> That's good. So, I mean, with with that too, was was there structure? You know, when you look at things, and I'm I'm not very good at in any of the um, you know, APAC languages when I look at them, even though I, I have to come across them occasionally. Um, but I know there's there's structure and syntax, and also just the general. I mean, this is very different than I'm used to in in your, you know your Anglo-Saxon kind of languages. Uh, yeah. So it's very different, and I think that exposure just it just. It worked that part of my brain to the point mm. that once I really got into my actual work and then I went back to college and I was really using a lot of heavy coding languages or like, I remember taking a Java course and being like, why are people struggling? <laughs> 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 or, um, you know, scripting. It's just once you know how to manipulate syntax, regardless of whether it's a computer program or a foreign language, once you learn how to kind of navigate that, it's the same skill just applied in a very different environment. Interesting. Yeah. And with, with that too, also when you were when in the Navy, you, you were team leads. How did mm -hmm. you fall into more of a, a leadership position than, you know, maybe just kind of being on the side? I think you said it well. I fell into it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, so... Initially, obviously, it's based on rank, and I was promoted. And right at the time that I was promoted to E5, um, which is a non-commissioned officer, 
uh, our current team lead decided he wanted to deploy. And I like how he volunteered to deploy. Um, he was in the Air Force and he volunteered to deploy to the Middle East for a year. Uh, so he, so because he and I were of the same actual rank, um, I just kind of was the default in a way. And I was also the most experienced on the team. So it was, I was the one that got pinged for the job. And, you know, it was the best experience I think I've ever had because at a very young age, I learned what it takes to be not just the leader, but a manager of people. Because whether you're in the military or working in the private sector, people will always be your best asset, but they will also always be your most complicated. <laughs> I, I, I can agree with that, having managed many teams, um, <laughs> the dynamics of it, you know, and how, how, how were some, or maybe were there some lessons learned from that, that you would say, hey, if somebody else was getting into this management leadership positions at a young age, say, hey, you know, here, here's, some, here's some commonalities, things that you need to look for. Uh, because, you know, whether it's a military mission or a corporate mission, you know, you have some objectives you have to get done. And then you have to wrangle, you know, I say it's like wrangling the cats, you know, trying to get everybody <laughs> going in the same direction and, and, and getting, you know, and humans are humans. It's difficult. So what were some of the things that maybe you have as takeaways that, that were really stood out to you in that role? So I think for me, one of the key takeaways was this is my team and ultimately their successes, their failures, their, you know, their training, their um, organization, all of it is my responsibility. And to me, what that meant and what I learned that it means, and this is how I would, I approach any teamwork I do now is that I may be the leader of this team, but we're all in it together. However, if something were to go wrong, or if you know, someone were to make a mistake. My job is to correct it, but it's also to sort of be a buffer between them and higher leadership. You know, it's it's to make sure that I, up, anyone above me understands that I was in charge at the time. Therefore, it, it was my responsibility if they had a, if, if something went wrong. And making sure that they were enabled to do their job without worrying about whether or not I was going to stand up for them or I was going to go to bat for them. I wanted to make sure they knew that I had their backs. And that, that to me is something I've definitely carried on into the private industry. Um, another thing is, you know, you're going to make mistakes. And some of the best things you can do is seek out mentors, especially if you're relatively young um, and you step into a leadership or a managerial role. And whether you're young in age or young in your career, the best thing you can look for are mentors who've been there, people who can help you navigate the intricacies of managing people, or as you put it, herding cats. <laughs> because it is difficult, and it's definitely one of the harder things to do, I think, even in cybersecurity. Yeah. And, and what were some of the, maybe some of the things you looked for in early mentors, um, characteristics that you know, you, you sought out and trying to find somebody to help you? People who are okay with um, disagreement um, and who are okay. Like, so if I were, I look for people who, even if I disagree with them, you know, it, it's not going to offend 
if they're going to say, okay, well, let me help you in the decision you are making, even if it's not what I would do. So looking for someone as a mentor who's very collaborative, who understands that maybe your managerial or leadership style might end up being different, but that we can all learn the same lesson so we can all apply them in maybe a different way or a different strategy. So that's something I definitely look for, someone who's very collaborative, somebody who has not only been there, but recognizes that we're all we're all different. We're all going to have very different styles. Like I'm very introverted. I'm, I'm a very hands-off kind of manager um, in that sense. If I am in a leadership role, I'm like, okay, I need you to do A, B, and C. Don't care how you get there. <laughs> <laughs> I often, I've, I've taken a very, I, I can be, I can fault myself for being a micromanager at times because I get very involved with things. But yeah, sometimes I almost say, hey, you know, with, with people, it's like you say, here's from point A to point B. There's lines on the road to help guide you. Mm-hmm. I'll grab the wheel if you're going to, you know, really veer off and crash into a tree or a mailbox. But for the most part, <laughs> yeah. you're going to, you know, you have to na- navigate this yourself. Yeah, it reminds me of that Carrie Underwood song, "Jesus Take the Wheel." Yeah, like, like don't let that happen. Grab the wheel. It's okay. <laughs> grab the wheel. Stay in. Stay in the lane. <laughs> yeah, I think I've had had some folks almost. They, they knew when they would come to me for help that they better have come with um, some research done first as opposed to me turning off the monitor and then drilling them for 45 minutes about what their approach was before they even came to me. So I think it's, it's again, it's that little bit of, uh, there was a, one of the first folks that I had on the podcast, uh, you know, he said, the you're not really a, a true leader until you create a leader that can create another leader. Um, and so that, that, uh, that mentality that, you know, Chris Pogue was the one who said that, you know, it's, it's just something that always stuck with me. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way to put it is you have to give the room to fail first. I really, I believe that you have to give your, anybody who's underneath you room to fail and learn from that. If you just, you know, if you, if you just fish for them, they're never going to learn how to fish. <laughs> exactly. So with that, you know, when, when I've looked at things and I, I try to break down security programs in my mind in a certain way, I'm curious on your take of, you know, you kind of have almost these three layers, for lack of a better way of putting these almost kind of macro layers, where you definitely have the, the folks that are more hands-on keyboard, the analysts, technical, the doers, and then you're going to have this management later, um, and then the leadership layer that then takes vision and then you have to operationalize it. And to me, I think that's as it goes up and down, there's always these conflicts and breaks that are naturally going to be there, but it's tough building a security program. It's tough going in and assessing where an organization is going to need the proverbial oil for the squeaky wheel. So what are some of the approaches that you take and maybe ways that you frame leadership management and program design in ways that can actually be effective? Because I think a lot of organizations feel, I'm just never going to be able to do this. It's it's just too complicated. Oh, that's because it is complicated. And I can understand (laughs) that feeling of being overwhelmed by building out a cybersecurity program and all that it entails because cybersecurity doesn't just, it's not just IT. Like as much as we wish it was just IT, it's not just IT. I think every cybersecurity analyst or professional would love for it to just be an IT focused, you know, kind of job, but it's not. You have to integrate HR and legal and you know, upper management and leadership, and then people from various different departments. So the way I typically tend to approach it is that, you know, it should, cybersecurity, if you're looking at it from a big perspective, 
in that overarching perspective or big picture, the first thing you need is leadership buy-in. That, that is the first thing you need that leadership buy-in because they are the ones that are going to define your business objectives. They are the ones that are going to say, this is our five-year, 10-year, you know, two-year vision. This is what we need to get to. And at the same time, they're also going to be the ones if something were to happen, a big hack or, you know, a big data breach or something like that. They're the ones that are going to kind of have to, you know, pay the piper. They're the ones that are going to have to face the, their industry partners and, the, you know, our customers or, you know, people who, you know, there's the people they service. They're the ones that are going to have to face it. So you really need their buy-in in terms of building out a security program. Um, and they should absolutely be endorsing, you know, doing what it takes and investing in cybersecurity, obviously to a reasonable amount to incorporate cybersecurity, not again, not just as IT, as, as much as we wish it could just be IT, but it has to be throughout the entire organization. It has to be user training. It has to be physical security. It has to be you know, testing and drills and all sorts of things go into it. And then from there, you have your, your managers, the people they kind of go to who say, the leadership goes to and says, okay, we have this vision, so we need you to do it. <laughs> we need you to actually paint the picture of this vision that we have. Um, and those individuals, that's what I mean when I say, like, they should be the buffer. They should be the ones between your technical analysts, your cybersecurity analysts, you know, your engineers and leadership. They're the ones that should come that when something goes wrong, you know, they are, they stand sort of between leadership and, you know, the team and they say, okay, well, we messed up, so let's fix it. They're, they should be the ones that allow their team members that room to fail so they can grow. Um, but they're also the ones that are going to go to leadership and they're the ones that have to convince leadership to invest in specific tools, to invest in specific strategies and tactics. I actually think that it's harder to be in that mid position, that mid managerial position where you have to work with your team, be a part of your team and help them achieve the mission and objectives that you have set them. And then to also turn around and go to leadership and say, well, we need to invest in this. And I know it's going to cost a lot of money, but it's something we actually need. Or to say, this is a huge threat. We need to take the time to assess it and mitigate it and implement strategies to do so to prevent something like, I don't know, a colonial pipeline hack, <laughs> you know, those kind of things. So it, I think that that's probably the hardest position to be in. And then you have your technical in you have your technical analysts, your cybersecurity analysts, your engineers, who, in my experience, those people love what they're doing most of the time. And that's exactly what they want to be doing. <laughs> and if I was them, I would say, okay, I love being, I know people who love being engineers. I know people who love being pen testers. I think for them though, it's very important to in order to truly execute the vision to the, the best of their ability and to execute upon objectives is to understand that in most organizations, you are a support function. Your job is to support the business 
so the business can support the employees and, you know, create livelihoods and, you know, sell their products or, you know, create services. And so I think that that's really important to understand um, a lot of times. And I remember even as a technical analyst and a cybersecurity analyst, you know, you're, you're really into your job, you're really into your weeds and you forget that what you're doing is meant to support a bigger vision. And I think it's really important for those individuals to remember that and maybe to maybe just take some time to invest in the business you're working for mentally. I mean, if you want to financially, you could do that too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, many work. That's, that's part of the comp plan these days. <laughs> so with that too, you know, as you, you know, it's particularly, and, I, I, and I've had this debate with folks in the community, and, and particularly where I came from things being very, very strongly IT-centric 80s, 90s, and early 2000s mm-hmm. before we really kind of developed this as a, as a you know, really as a business support function. Um, you know, IT was IT. It was to support the IT business. And now I'm like, well, IT supports the business, so let's just skip the IT nomenclature. Um, but I've, I've continued to face challenges in trying to reshape the way that we bring folks into the industry, say, well, look, you know, I, I'm I'm working folks that have business skills, communication skills. I can teach them the technical skills, and that stuff can scale and stuff. But people that really understand why we're doing things become a challenge. Have you seen that as, as an issue too? And, and maybe is it getting better? I have seen it as an issue, um, but I also think it's getting better, and that's because I mean, tech. I have a yeah, I have a you know a you know, a science degree, but it's it's a business science degree. So I also took business courses. I mean, they were my most despised courses, but they taught me a lot of valuable things in college. And I think that you know we're seeing more of that crossover, and we're seeing, especially in terms of people who work in startups or work in smaller firms. I mean, I think my generation was literally the generation of startups. And that taught a lot of, you know, people, a lot of us that business is as important as the IT that serves it. Um, I think I'm lucky in the sense that the company I work for, our, our services are cybersecurity. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I guess I am the product, but, um, you know, I think it is changing. I think it is changing for the better. I think people are getting out of their silos. And I think cybersecurity is a big part of that because we're starting to see the effects of, you know, cybersecurity hacks, you know, affect the daily lives of, you know, Americans or people across the world. We're starting to see it less as an IT issue and more of as, oh, this is everybody's issue. You know, everybody has email. Everybody has a mobile device. Most people have a mobile device. (laughs) Everybody has a computer or, you know, uses a laptop and maybe uses two laptops. I've seen, you know, individuals in like a finance department have a laptop, a tablet, two phones. I mean, they have devices, so many devices assigned to them, and that's just by the company. So I think we're starting, it's starting to change and everyone's starting to see that, yes, IT is a support function, but it's also the business. Most people, IT is literally the infrastructure of the business a lot of times. And I think people in IT are starting to see that what they do has a direct influence, what they do or do not do, has a direct influence on how well the business does, 
how well the business can operate in their day-to-day lives, like their day-to-day activities. And we're really start they're really starting to see that, oh, again, IT is that it's that bone and infrastructure of almost every single modern business that we have today. If something in IT fails, this could bring down this whole operation for a day or two days or worse, a week or a month. So I do think yeah. I was going to say, it's, you know, one of the things too, it's like, you know, I think we're getting better as an industry to communicate this and say, hey, look, we're, we're trying to come meet the business folks at least halfway, if not more. Um, and but one of the things that, you know, maybe that got pushed back on me a little bit, it's like, well, hey, it's, you know, this is, this is a two-way street. Um, the business sometimes doesn't appreciate what we do to secure and support the business. Do you see that as a problem too, um, where it's, you know, we've kind of been this uh, amorphous black box and they're just a little hands off and say, you know, whatever, just, just you, you do what you do with what we do. Or are they getting better now at, at really understanding what we do? I think in general, I want to be optimistic and say it's getting better. But in my real world experience is that it's kind of 50, 50 depends on the organization. And again, it really, it really depends heavily on if that organization's leadership has sort of said cybersecurity is important because without it, our business will fail. Um, And I think, again, having that leadership buy-in is just, it's so paramount, but it's also a big part of getting employee buy-in. I mean, your personnel, your, you know, everyone from your administrative assistants to your, you know, your CFO, every single person in your organization is either a point of defense or a point of failure. And it, it's, I think it's really up to the business. A business with a good, with a culture that emphasizes cybersecurity processes as just part of day-to-day activities, you know, that are normal, that this is just how we do it. You know, it, they're the ones who have the most success because it's been ingrained. They have essentially created that culture of, well, of course we use two-factor authentication. Why wouldn't we? We all have mobile devices. Those are the ones that are gonna succeed in the long run is when they really begin to integrate cybersecurity strategies and tactics into the daily operations and culture of the organization. And they make it not just valuable to the company, but valuable to the employees who work at that company. Now all of a sudden, if you can say, well, we use two-factor at work. Well, you did you know you can also use it to log into your Facebook account? Or did you know you can also use it to log into your bank account? Like really making it valuable to employees as well. Those are the ones who are going to be successful. And I see a lot of those organizations, but I do see organizations that are still sort of, we're a business first, IT is support. And those are typically the organizations that I think suffer the worst when they get, you know, um, hacked or breached. And they're really in that reactive stage where we react to one incident and we fix that one thing that caused it, okay, we're good and we're going to push cybersecurity to the back of our minds. Sort of like, I need to invest for retirement, but I'll think about it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow's the big the big bet on the stock market. It's always that. We'll, we'll get to it when we get to it when we need it as opposed to looking at it from 
kind of the resiliency mindset of, hey, that's, we just got to build in the risk and spread the risk. <laughs> and part of that, you know, I look at things, you know, where, where there have been different standards, and I know you do some work in the compliance space with that. Um, but sometimes those can be a little bit cumbersome and, and maybe not as approachable to the business um, because they can either be too prescriptive, too vague. You know, they, yeah. they, find, they, 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 they have trouble sometimes finding that balance. What has been your experience in applying those into programs uh, and making them successful? Uh, customization will make it successful because yes, I have yet to see a framework or a compliance standard or a, or a regulatory standard. So HIPAA being like the legal regulatory type standard that is actually in and of itself singularly useful. And what I mean by that is if you're an organization, do not rely on just one framework or just one standard. They're all useful. It's just picking and choosing what strategy within those. So whether you're picking NIST, you know, cybersecurity framework or the CIS top 20 critical controls, maybe saying we like the strategy of the top 20 critical controls, but we like the framework of NIST CSF. So how can we merge those? and make it useful for our organization. They're just frameworks, they're just guidelines. Customize it, make it yours, make it workable. Because you could follow everything, you could follow every, you know, all five functions of the NIST cybersecurity framework, you could follow everything it prescribes, and guess what, you could still get hacked. So the my what I try and stress with clients is, you know, Look at cybersecurity first. Focus on securing your organization in a way that is not just sustainable, but feasible, can make you mature over time or enable you to mature over time. And in a way that is a layered, you know, approach where not, there is no one, one single point of failure. Make sure you at least have two points of failure, <laughs> hopefully more. <laughs> But, um, you know, where you have that redundancy and resiliency built in and a framework can help you do that, but they are cumbersome. They are long and they are, I, I'm going to be the first, but they're boring to read. <laughs> yeah. As, I find some of the NIST 800 stuff is great when you have insomnia. <laughs> it really is. Like, I wish they'd make audiobook versions, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's take what's useful from them. And when I say take what's useful, I don't mean just pick and choose what you think is useful. I mean, say, what are the broad things that, you know, you know, the CIS top 20 is covering? What are the big things they're covering? Okay. What are the big things NIST is covering? A lot of it's identify assets. A lot of it is making sure you know what you have, where you have it, what's running, who has access. It's all, it's all the same. It, none of it is very different. It's just different words or different priorities. Take the big categories and then apply it. Don't focus on making your organization 100% compliant in one like year or you know, 100% secure in one year. You're never going to be 100% secure. I wish the only way to do that is to disconnect entirely from the internet. And even then, <laughs> you're still not going to be 100% secure. Instead, say, Let's get this year, let's say cybersecurity is a strategy, cybersecurity is a priority. 
let's get 10 or 15% better than we were last year. And then keep doing that. Do it in every department, in every business unit. Say, I want accounting to be 15% more secure than this year than it was last year. You know, it, 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 it's moving that needle a little bit at the time. Is it a perfect strategy? No. But is it a doable strategy? Yes. And it's making sure that you're improving every single time. It's, so that's one way I help clients go, oh, okay, we don't have to be 100% perfect right now. We have to go, how do we be better than we were yesterday? And that's way more easy for a business to achieve is continuing to make cybersecurity a priority, making sure that you're improving on it as often as possible in, as a, fe in a feasible, sustainable, and affordable way because businesses still have to be businesses. They still have to, you know, drive a profit. And that's where IT as a support function comes in. But I think by doing that, by, by integrating it into the culture and then focusing on improving it over time, as a part of a holistic program, rather than just a fix it now, one and done, is going to is is probably the best way to look at those compliance strategies and say, okay, we do have PCI data, we do have HIPAA data. Okay, let's take both. What do we need to focus on? Narrow your focus, and you can be far more successful than if you try and do everything at once or focus solely on one kind of framework. Yeah, it's it's a little bit too when I when I look at them <clears throat> and people say, you know, what should I use? I, I, for me, I'm you know outside of work, I love to cook. And somebody said, well, what was your recipe? I'm like, I, I looked up like ten different ones, and I used a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But mm -hmm. this is what I found. But to your point, there was there was an order of operations that still works. So if I'm baking a cake, I'm not going to throw all the ingredients unmixed into a cold oven and then turn it. You know, there's <laughs> there's steps in which have to happen no matter what, even if you're going to tweak things along the way. Exactly. Um, and, and you have to set realistic goals. I think too many people think to that point is, hey, we have to get this all done at once. I'm like, this is your – most people um, walk into the cybersecurity gym and they are not that healthy. And they're going to have to take baby steps and rehab some injuries before they're ready to do that Iron Man or woman. You know, it's not like, hey, no, no, a week from now. It's going to, uh, you're going to be able to do that. It takes time. So with that in the messaging to business, are there ways that you've framed that to them that, that make it a little digestible so they, you know, they they accept that it can be done and they just don't throw hands up and say, oh, it can never be done? Um, I mean, it really goes back to, to moving that needle just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Because I think once you can communicate to the business side, this is valuable. And that's the biggest thing you have to do is convince leadership, convince, you know, that side that it is a valuable investment because it's not necessarily an investment that they will see a return on, but they will absolutely see the damage done if they don't invest in it. So the biggest thing I try and emphasize is you don't want to see a return on investment from investing in security. Because if you are seeing a return on investment in terms of dollars and cents, it's probably because you're paying ransom <laughs> from ransomware. But what you want to look for is, wait a minute, we're in such an like 
let's say I'm going to use it just because it's a real simple example and it's in the news right now, but you know, colonial pipeline hack, that's a big artery that if for anyone who doesn't know, it was the hack from, for that pipeline that goes from Texas all the way to New York. I think it's a big, it's like the biggest one on the East coast and it was shut down. Well, if I'm a pipeline and maybe I'm a smaller one or I'm a natural gas company or I'm an oil and gas company and I'm looking at this ransomware that hit this one pipeline and the organizations that were affected by that ransomware, but we were not affected and we have done our due diligence. We've, you know, investigated our systems. We've made sure that we understand the signature of the attack, what to look for. You know, we've done all this and we can with relative confidence, so I'd say at least a you know 90% confidence, say we were not affected by that, that's your return on investment. Is seeing an attack happen in your industry, and not just in your industry, but maybe also in your region across multiple organizations, and you were not affected, and maybe you even have indications of being targeted. And this is where it comes to the point of that middle management of making sure your leadership knows this happened, but we weren't affected because we did A, B, and C. If you can do that, if you can go to your leadership or if I can go to leadership and I can show them this, that right there is your return on investment. It may just be a report, but that means that the business can continue to be the business. It can continue to provide jobs to its employees. It can continue to provide products and services to customers. It can just continue to do its day-to-day operations. And that's what—that's how I kind of try and communicate it. What I also try and communicate to leadership in order to get them to, you know, sort of get there to how do you invest in a cybersecurity program is at the end of the day, you as leadership will define the next five to 10 years of success in this organization, whether you're there or not. What you do today, the decisions you make in a highly technical world where everything is digitized, where every facet of our world is becoming more and more integrated online and more and more integrated into information systems, everything from all the way from, you know server racks all the way to IoT devices, like an Alexa in a conference room, those decisions you make, they, they're ramifications you'll see five years from now, 10 years from now. Um, and I think when you can tell them that, that their investment isn't necessarily in dollars and cents, but it is in the overall success and the growth and resiliency of that business and that's, that can help drive their decisions in a more positive way for cybersecurity. Love it. You know, it's one of the <laughs> things, too, is when I go in and I'll ask an organization, I say, okay, let's start an assessment. I'm like, well, how do, you, how do you keep the lights on? And they're like, I'm sorry. I'm like, yeah, how, like, what, <laughs> what do you do here? How do you, and, and not we do, like, really break it down from point A to point B and let's secure that. And they're like, oh. Yeah, it's not, it's not that, that's not a crazy ask, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. It's like, oh, we just have to put locks on the breakers? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know much about electricity, so. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm, uh, yeah, I, I try to stay away from my, my, my wife keeps me away from the, the power tools and electricity. Um, but one of the things we were talking about too, a little bit before we hit recording is, uh, we started recording was, you know, too, and, and one of the things I've been championing as much as I can this year is, as well as promoting up and coming stars like yourself, but, you know, the, the lack of diversity. Um, let's, you know, call it what it is. It's just, we are a very white male, cis male, able-bodied, middle-class kind of industry uh, as far as profile, how have you had to navigate that? Because I have to imagine, you know, there's more people that I talk to that quite frankly don't look like me or even have my background. I said, yeah, you know, I've had to navigate some pretty sometimes toxic situations. Yeah, uh, it is. It is. Um, I think so in a weird way, I think I was primed to be in a very male dominated um, sort of sphere. Um, IT in general is very male dominated, but cybersecurity for some reason, <laughs> it's just like the hangout for uh, cis white dudes. But but the military sort of primed me for that. I got very used to working, not just with men, but with women working and outnumbered by men, which mm. is, you know, and the way I have sort of, I guess, approached my work is that is one of two ways. I go back to mentorship. I look for female mentors and I also look for male mentors. I look for both. And I don't stick to just one. I look for multiple people who are either in leadership or who are just better at doing something than I am. And making sure that I not only foster those relationships, but that I do so in a way that is you know, equitable, collaborative, communicative. It's not always easy, but it is always valuable and you always learn something from it. And I think that while there are seams and it does feel like there's a lot of barriers is particularly for women. I think those barriers are slowly being chiseled down. I don't want to say that we're like kicking doors down, but we are chiseling away at it. Um, and it, which is good, but I think if we want to attract more women or more people of color or more nonces individuals into cybersecurity, one of the best ways to do that is education. One of the best ways to do that is telling young girls, you know, whether it's you're a man in cybersecurity and you're just telling your daughters, no, you're good at math. No, you're good at science. No, you're good at computers. Just hearing that narrative in your mind of you're good at this, you can do this, telling our children that, telling our teenagers that, even telling our college students that is so incredibly important. Because I went through my entire high school like years being told, no, your your girls are bad at math from teachers. Come to, you know, I go to college in my late 20s and all of a sudden I'm actually really good at calculus. And I'm like, what, what, what the heck happened? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where was that? Per Everyone told me I was bad at math and all of a sudden I'm not. No, it, it's about changing that narrative starting in education, but it's also in for people now and for women now in organizations, it's saying, okay, yes, tech and cybersecurity used to be the like center of the proverbial boys club. But how can I positively influence that? I mean, women as, as, 
as hard as it is in to be a woman in cybersecurity, we also have a unique position because they want more of us to be there. They want a more pers diverse perspective in technology and in cybersecurity. And I think knowing that there is that desire as a woman in that position, what we do, we are in a unique position to help bring up other women or people of color. And the biggest way to do that is advocate for each other. It's, I always advocate for talented, unique women who I know would maybe they aren't serving in a specific role right now, but I think they'd be fantastic in it, in another one. I'm all, like always look to advocate for those other women. And my advice to men in the organization now would be, look at those women, look at the women who you know are just, they are coming to work, they're doing their job, they're succeeding at it, they're, you know, they're just nose to the grind and doing what they do every single day and they're being successful and they're talented and motivated and ambitious. Look at those women, advocate for them, mentor them, you know, just invite them to lunch. It's like if you're going to lunch with a bunch of, you know, like your team members and you're all dudes, just invite them to lunch, include them. It's that simple. It doesn't have to it. It, it's complicated, but there are solutions to help create that more positive atmosphere. And one of the biggest ways to do that as either a man or a woman in the industry is advocate for the ones coming up behind you. And that's whether they're men, whether they're women, you know, people of color advocate for them, because if you're already in the industry, you have the power to do that. And it's the, one of the biggest things that's made a big impact on my career is I've sought out those mentors and they have advocated for me every step of the way. And I wouldn't be where I am today if I had not done that. I can't even think of a better way to end this. I mean, that was, that was just perfect. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's right in line with what I've, I've been seeing, you know, because we keep having these talks about, Oh, you know, there's this talent shortage, skill shortage. I'm like, there are plenty of people. I'm thinking the problem is us. Um, and how we hire, retain, and recruit. It's not, oh, it so is. You know, <laughs> we, so need, the, the, we need to fix it internally. <laughs> I mean, how many times have you looked at an entry-level job that requires five years experience, two certifications, and, you know, like mastery yeah. of Python and JavaScript? You're like, this is an entry-level job. Yeah. <laughs> who who spent out? Who has who has uh, who has a student loan debt that went to school for ten years that to just get in the door? I mean, it's, it's unrealistic. It, it is unrealistic. So maybe look at someone who's working at an IT help desk who you know really wants to be in cybersecurity and go, hmm, how do I help them do that? Love it. Well, Jenna, where can people find you online? So. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at Jenna Waters. That's Jenna with two N's. Waters, like it sounds, W-A-T-E-R-S. <laughs> Just water, plural, um, on LinkedIn. Or you can find me um, at my company's website, which is uh, www.truedigitalsecurity.com. Awesome, Jenna. I greatly appreciate you taking the time today, and I'll be sure to put that stuff in the show notes so people can find you online. Fantastic. Thank you. I really enjoyed being on today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. 
There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.